We're going to go ahead and get started here because we're covering three books this morning. Three books of the Bible in one class. <laughs> we got a lot to cover. Let's just say there's less pictures in these slides than in others. <laughs> less pictures and more content. <laughs> I know, isn't it amazing? I didn't even think they had cameras back then, but I guess so. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, let's dive in. Um, we're going to cover Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon this morning. So obviously, we're going to be covering that at a pretty overview level. And that's okay, but each of these books is a wonderful object of study in greater depth. So I hope that this will just kind of prime the pump for you. You know, maybe it'll lead you to want to uh, read through the introductory section in your your study Bible. And then, you know, maybe eventually do a more in-depth study. Why don't we open with prayer and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us and sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We know that that is the defining event for our lives, that as the Israelites looked back to the Exodus, that we are to always look back to the cross and resurrection of our Savior. We thank you that he is even now in heaven at your right hand, victorious on our behalf, that even now all his enemies are being put under his feet, and one day he will return in glory to finish the work that he's begun in us, to raise the dead and judge the wicked and make all things new. We long for that day, but in the meantime, Lord, we know you call us to be students of your word so that we might know you and know your son and that we might grow in uh, our obedience to him. And our and we know that the scripture is our bread, our food, our spiritual nourishment for our souls. So we pray that you would nourish us and strengthen us this morning through your word and that particularly as we cover these books in an overview fashion that you would equip us to understand your word in greater depth as we as we read through it in our own lives. And so we pray that you would particularly give us understanding of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon this morning for our good and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, as you can see, this is the last class in, in this trimester, um, we are going to start part two, overview of the Old Testament, and we'll be covering the prophets next. We are going to move the class, I believe, into the larger classroom because there will only be one class next semester. Ben is going to do some preaching for me, and he still works full time and has a little family, so obviously it's a lot for him to do both a class and preaching, so... We're gonna. He's not gonna be teaching a second class for me, but that's okay. We'll we'll continue our study in the next semester. So let's start with Proverbs, and let's just start with some introductory matters here. Um, Proverbs. I thought this was a good summary. It's a collection of Israelite wisdom literature, because there are a variety of different kinds of literature in the Book of Proverbs. Even though, when you think of the Book of Proverbs, what do you think of? Yeah, little pithy sayings, you know, that's, you know, you think of a proverb, right? But there is actually different kinds of wisdom literature in there, not just those pithy sayings. In terms of the authors of Proverbs, in fact, if you have your Bible, let's look at a couple passages here. 
Most of the material is attributed to Solomon. So if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And if you go to chapter 10, verse 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon. And if you go to chapter 25, verse 1, it says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So probably what you have here, similar to Psalms, right, is a collection of material, most of which were written by Solomon, but went through an editing process over time in terms of the arrangement of the material, not in terms of the actual content. Obviously, Hezekiah lived long after Solomon, and so there was still some arranging of the material going on at that point. But if you continue, if you go back in the book, and I'm just going to go back one chapter here to show you, but the, ma- the material that goes under, so if you look at uh, chapter 24, verse th- 23, it says, these also are sayings of the wise. And there's actually a couple chapters in the book. You know, if you go, it goes all the way back into chapter 23 that go under the heading of sayings of the wise. Okay. And then if you go forward toward the end here in chapter Chapter 30, you see the words of Agur, son of Jaqeh. And then 31, the famous chapter 31, it says the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So, there is a collection of material, most of which was written by Solomon, but some smaller sections were composed by other authors as well. Particularly three groups of materials, some by the wise, some by a man named Agur, and one by a king named Lemuel. And it wasn't, you, you can see in the wisdom literature and in extra biblical literature as well, a sort of um, a genre of material that might be all go under the heading of wisdom literature. And that was written by, you know, people that would have been called part of the wise particular wise men. And so this is obviously inspired wisdom literature, but it's not the only material of its kind in the ancient world. Okay, and then editors, obviously I've just shown you chapter 25 verse 1 indicates the men of Hezekiah were involved with perhaps copying and perhaps even arranging some of the material in the book. Date. Well, if most of the materials were composed by Solomon, then that would put it in the 930s. That's when his reign was, B.C., so the 10th century B.C. But some of the material, perhaps, because we don't know exactly when Lemuel and Agur and these people called the wise were lived, but perhaps even into the 6th century B.C., and there are reasons why scholars would date it there, but we won't get into all those details in terms of genre, most of the material as you go as you go through Proverbs, you see it are these little pithy sayings. So you guys know what we're talking about when we say these little pithy sayings. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. And then that's, that's a whole proverb right there. Just little pithy sayings like that. Most of them take that form of Hebrew poetry, parallel lines, right? So you might have the sluggard says this and the diligent man says that, right? Or does that. So that's the sort of genre of it is it's obviously mostly in poetry, 
but these little pithy sayings that communicate truisms. Okay, so that's a little bit about the introductory matters uh, with respect to Proverbs. Now let's go to the content and the function of Proverbs. The chapters 1 through 9, you'll notice that when you're in these chapters, these are not, this isn't really filled with pithy sayings. This is filled more with more extended uh, treatments. So you have a number of different things in that it, that it talks about. It talks about adultery. It spends quite a bit of time talking about adultery and sexual fidelity versus versus sexual infidelity. A couple chapters on that. Uh, it talks about other issues that Solomon is presented as sort of speaking to his son about the value of wisdom, calling his son to, per, to pursue wisdom. And like I said, in this, in this section, it's not just like a jumble of pithy sayings. It's more extended treatments of these subjects. So you guys remember the whole, for instance, that section where he talks about the young man, you know, walking down the street by the adulteress's house and how he gets seduced. And, and then it talks about the terrible consequences of that, right? So it's that type of thing, longer treatments. Chapters 1 and, uh, and 9, what you'll see in these is you'll see... Wisdom and folly presented as women, and they are speaking, right? So, verse 20 of chapter 1, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. And then wisdom speaks and calls people to come to her and to get wisdom. And you get a similar thing in chapter 9, except wisdom um, wisdom speaks, you know, for instance... Uh, Verse chapter chapter 8, going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not her understanding raise her voice? And you have the call of wisdom. But then, at the very end, you notice at the end of chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, it says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by. Right? So, you have these... Wisdom and folly being presented as two women. One, a virtuous woman calling to people to come and get wisdom like silver or gold and it will lead to blessing. Another, folly like a seductress standing on the street trying to get people to come aside to her, but what she offers is death and destruction, right? It's that last phrase is in verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So that's the sort of first section, chapters 1 through 9. And then in chapters 10 through 31 is where you get the bulk of the material are these sort of more pithy sayings. Although when you get more toward the end of the book in the material written by the wise and Agur and Lemuel, it's a mixture of pithy proverbs as well as some more extended dialogue similar to chapters 1 through 9, right? More extended treatments. So, and you can see the various sections that were written by different people. So chapters 10 through 22 are Proverbs of Solomon. As, and then it goes back. Then you have the words of the wise in 22 through 24. Then in 25 through 29, more Proverbs of Solomon. And then the last two chapters are Agur and Lemuel. It is also interesting, isn't it, in terms of the structure of the book, that it opens in chapter 1 with woman wisdom calling aloud, and it ends in chapter 31 with what? 
the virtuous woman, right? The wise woman. There's something to that. And I'm not exactly, you know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time studying it in depth, but I think that you're meant to see us beyond just a picture of a virtuous woman, right? The flourishing and the the blessing that comes through through wisdom, right? Obviously embodied in this in this woman. Okay. And then I want to talk about how a proverb works. This is important. A proverb presents a truism, not a rule or promise. So if you think about it this way, Proverbs tell you in general how things work in God's world. But you can't take a proverb and say this is going to be a hard and fast rule that will be true in every case. And so one of the most um, the places where you can see this most clearly is um, you know, the Proverbs about child rearing, where it talks about, you know, train up a child in the way he shall go and he shall not depart from it, right? Well, that's not, that's a general truism, but not always the case in every situation, right? And we know that just from our own personal experience. You know, people, perhaps even yourself, that you've, you were diligent in training a child and, and yet they still went astray. But as a general truism, the way things work in God's world, that is, that is true. So we don't say it's false just because it's not true in every case, that there are not exceptions, right? Also, it teaches, it usually has this polarity to it. You know, the Proverbs are very black and white. Although if you overlay all the Proverbs together, right? So all the Proverbs on money or speech, you see sophistication, don't you? But nevertheless, when you're at any one Proverb, you have these two ways. The way of wisdom and the way of folly. So there is definitely this, this polarity. They're, they're presenting things in black and white. Way of wisdom, which leads to blessing in life. The way of folly, which leads to destruction and death. So that's just a, a stylistic way that the Proverbs operate. Which, by the way, is why, for instance, when you come to the opening psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 1, People will say that's a wisdom psalm, right? It shares these features with wisdom literature because it talks about two ways to live, right? So this is one another feature of wisdom literature. And you, when you think about the Proverbs, obviously you have these more extended treatments, but when you think about these little pithy sayings, sometimes it can be tedious when you're reading through them, can't you? Because what you're, you're reading through and you're jumping from one subject to the next, to the next, to the next. And you're like, man, this is overwhelming. I can't, you know, so you, and, and really I would say that that's because Proverbs are not really meant to be read that way. I mean, we read them that way in our Bible reading, but they're meant to be like, you're meant to stop with each one and reflect upon what that means. And the more you reflect upon it, and you think about how it works out in life, the more you gain wisdom from it. So they're not necessarily intended to be read the way that, you know, we read them in our Bible reading plan that was power through all these different Proverbs and we feel like we just were overwhelmed by the dizzying array of issues that it addressed, right? So they're pithy sayings that are meant to kind of sit there in your mind and be mulled over and sink into your soul as you reflect upon them. Also, the topics of the Proverbs, just say a couple things about this. They address a range of practical topics. Again, how things work in God's world. Truisms about how things work in God's world regarding your speech, friendship and relationships, 
marriage, sexuality, family, child-rearing, work, money, government, sex, life and death, etc. So they cover, they're, they're meant to, you're meant to see that the Proverbs cover the range of life's experiences, right? And they tell you truisms about how things work in God's world. And on, all, on, on a range of issues. So you're supposed to come away from the Proverbs having gained wisdom for life. But it is interesting that they're jumbled together with no discernible order. The Proverbs have been looked at for a long time by scholars, and no one's come up with some like pattern or you know, way that you can see, ah, see, I see why he put them in this order. No, they seem to have been you know, put into a bag, jumbled up and blah, out on the page, right? But... But I'm not saying that, that's, that there's sort of a haphazard way to it. It's just that this is how God intended the Proverbs to be presented to us. That a proverb about speech would be put next to a proverb about money, next to a proverb about hard work and diligence, next to a proverb about your marriage, etc. And that's the way that they are. And perhaps it has to do with the fact that they are meant to be stopped and reflected on. That each one is to be treated individually. And if you had, you know, all the Proverbs on money put in one place, you might be less likely to do that than if they were jumbled up. So that's just one idea as to why God in his wisdom had them. Yeah. Another, but I just thought of when you said, you talked about being jumbled up, is life is that way. (laughs) Right, that's true, isn't it? You know, you you read one that talks about your speech and then go on, like you said, to, to marriage and everything. It's like... Oh, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't have this problem with my marriage or with my family if I watched what I said. Right. And, yeah. and vice versa, you know. And so maybe yeah. that's why they... It's a good point, Marinelle, because if you think about it, life is sort of like the Proverbs in the sense that every day you are experiencing a whole range of these issues and those issues inter. inter- Interact with yeah. one another, right? And no, no two days are the same. Right, yeah. So it, this sometimes. it really does reflect, exactly, it really does reflect life and how life is. So that's a good point. Okay, so the teaching of Proverbs. And, and on this point, so let's look at these Proverbs one by one here. The Proverbs teach about hard work and laziness. Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Diligence versus laziness. Uh, Strong friends versus fickle companions. Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin. Think NBA basketball players. They have the whole group of people that follow them around and they pay for all their meals and give them all the money and then when the money runs out, they're gone. And they end up impoverished. But strong friends. So a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In other words, a true friend who sticks with you is going to be a help to you and even a protection to you in life. Patience versus anger. Proverbs 15 verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So if you're quick to anger, you tend to make problems in relationships. But if you're slow to anger, you're you're a peacemaker. Fidelity to your wife versus adultery. Proverbs 
uh, 5. Going back to that early section, this isn't going to be a, a short, pithy saying. This is a, a longer treatment. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Embrace the bosom of an adulteress. So there you have fidelity to your wife versus adultery. Restraint in speech versus too much talking. So Proverbs 10 verses 19 and 20. When there are many words, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And then you look at verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. So speech, restraint in speech versus too much talking and discipline of children versus withholding it. I'm trying to think of a different way of putting withholding it. Maybe you could put indulgence or pampering or something along those lines. But Proverbs thirteen twenty four, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Right. Virtuous wife versus nagging wife. And of course, we could say that the principles could apply either way, right? But Proverbs 21, verse 9, It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. But then, you think of the very last chapter, chapter 30, and if we just look, for instance, at verse 31, 30, it says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, you know, the benefits of having a, a virtuous spouse versus an unvirtuous spouse. And then uh, sobriety versus drunkenness. You have this very sobering, no pun intended, uh, passage about drunkenness versus sobriety. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your hearts utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Right? So the, the folly of drunkenness and the, on the flip side, the wisdom uh, is implied is the wisdom of sobriety. And then uh, submitting to government versus rebelling. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise quickly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. In other words, don't join with those who are rebelling against the, the Lord and the king. All right. So this is just a sampling of the teaching. Oh, one more. Proverbs 16 Verses 18 and 19. 
You know this one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Okay, so this is the teaching of Proverbs, just a sampling. But This is the type of thing that it presents you, the way of wisdom, the way of folly. This is how things work in God's world. Okay. Now, Proverbs in redemptive history. This is an interesting thing. What, you know, you think, okay, you have the Bible, which has this clear storyline, right? From, you just take the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, the history of, of Israel that stretches back to creation and then through Jacob and his sons and then the history of the kings and all of this. And then in the middle of this is this wisdom literature that seems very ahistorical, doesn't it, right? Truisms about how God, how things work in God's world. And you ask yourself, well, what is the purpose of this this material in the broader picture of redemptive history? Well, it's clear, even the fact that it was written by Solomon predominantly, this book, that it was intended for the covenant community of God's people, right? For the nation of Israel uh, in, the Old Test- in the Old Testament era. But there's no doubt that it has a universal flavor, right? You don't see much about Israel or the Davidic king or Jerusalem or, you know, it's, it's, it has this universal flavor. And that's why we see in the New Testament that they take the Proverbs and they just apply them directly, right, to us. And, and it's always on these issues of just how to live your life, right? And so what you see is that the Proverbs are intended to be seen as this is how things work in God's world. They're more tied with creation, right, than they are with any particular era in redemptive history. So as long as we live in God's world under the curse as fallen people, this is how things work. And so that's why they don't need to be sort of interpreted through the lens of Christ's redemptive work in the sense that the Old Covenant law will say things that we know don't apply to us directly because, for instance, we don't need to you know, wear certain kinds of clothing without having two materials mixed together. We don't have to eat certain foods and not other foods. There's a lot of the Old Covenant law that we have that, that doesn't apply directly to us. You have to understand it in light of the event of the cross. The wisdom literature can be applied directly because it just speaks of how things work in God's world. And that hasn't changed since Christ came. However, we will say that Jesus and his gospel is described as the ultimate wisdom from God. So the wisdom that you have in the Proverbs will lead to blessing and prosperity, but the wisdom we have in Christ leads to eternal life. And so the New Testament will speak of Jesus as the one in whom the wisdom of the past is embodied, as well as the one who provides us with new wisdom that leads to eternal blessing in life. So, for instance, just a few passages here, but Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or... You, you guys remember the passage in 1 Corinthians, where in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, beginning in 18, but running all the way through the end of the chapter, 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then he goes on this long treatment, right, of how how the word of the cross is true wisdom from God, that Christ himself, he says in the last verse, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So Christ, if you look at the Proverbs and you say, this is the way of blessing and this is the way of wisdom leads to blessing and folly that leads to destruction in God's world, in, in life, in God's world, well, Christ has become the ultimate wisdom. To embrace Christ is to have eternal blessedness. To reject Christ is to leads to eternal ruin. And we would also say that Christ himself embodies the wisdom that you see in the Proverbs and that Christ has given us the Holy Spirit who then enables us to live out the wisdom of the Proverbs. So the event of Christ's coming hasn't changed the principles in Proverbs, but there is a sense in which, you know, it has affected our interaction with it. It has given the ultimate wisdom. Christ has become to us wisdom from God, and it's enabled us to really begin to embody in our own lives the wisdom of the past. Okay, so that's Proverbs. Any question on Proverbs before we move to Ecclesiastes? Okay. For the sake of time, then, I'm going to move on. The book of Ecclesiastes. Let's turn there. Author. The the author, you see in in verse 1, do you see what it says? The words of the preacher. Does it have a little one next to that? The preacher below, it says, or convener or collector. There's been some debate about how to interpret this word. In Hebrew, it's koheleth. Most of the English versions will translate it the preacher or the teacher. I think that's probably the best way to understand the word in this context. But he identifies himself in this sort of cryptic way as koheleth, which may mean the teacher or the preacher. In chapter 1, verse 12, if you look over at verse 12, you see further clues. He says, I, Koheleth, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay, now what are some things that we can discern from that? Well, he says, king over Israel, which seems to indicate if you were living after the divided kingdom, would you say something like that? Probably not, right? Because Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah is the south. So if you were king from Jerusalem, you'd be king over Judah, not Israel. But if he says, I am king over Israel in Jerusalem, it indicates that the author himself is the king over the united king. He's a Davidic king, but king over the united kingdom. And so you start narrowing that down. Well, you only have two options, David and Solomon. Well, even though Solomon is never mentioned in the book, he seems to be the most likely candidate for being Koheleth, for being the preacher. And of course, we know that that would fit because he was particularly endowed with wisdom from God. And he wrote much material. Even the book of Kings tells us that he wrote so many proverbs and songs and other things. So it would make sense that the traditional understanding that Koheleth is Solomon, and if that's the case, then it would make sense that the book was written during his reign, which we'll look at in a second. But they're actually, if you think about it, it is an interesting book because Koheleth isn't the only voice 
in the book, you have a narrator who you see in the opening lines, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 9, the narrator speaks again, right? Besides being wise, the preacher, Koheleth, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. Again, another indication that this is probably Solomon. And so it switches back to this sort of narrator role. Now, you know, how, how does that complicate the issue of authorship? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, this could have been just a stylistic way that Solomon wrote, or it could be that there was some other author involved who took Solomon's material and bracketed it with his own comments. But probably this was just Solomon writing in this stylistic way, third person at the beginning and the end, and then, his, and then first person throughout the book. Because if you look at the rest of the book, it's, it speaks in I, 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 I. So it's Koheleth himself speaking. The date, if, if obviously, if Solomon's the author, which it seems to me very quite certain that he was, then that would be, again, the 930s BC. It's tar- in terms of the genre, it's very interesting that they're really, this book is quite unique in terms of literature, whereas you know there are other writings in the ancient world that took the form of proverb, proverbial material. But there's nothing quite like Ecclesiastes in, in, in the Bible, obviously, but in the ancient Near East in terms of other documents that we've found. But it's, it's quite simple in some ways in terms of its form. It's Hebrew poetry as well as prose. You see prose there at the end in the beginning, but a lot of it is written in that parallel Hebrew poetry. Um, and then it teaches a lesson. So it's sort of like Job, right, in the sense that Yes, there are, there are proverbs in the book, these little pithy sayings, but you have to step back from the book of Ecclesiastes and say, what is he doing in this whole book? What argument is he making? What point is he establishing, right? That's how you have to handle Job, right? You don't just take any one bit of Job out and say, okay, I'm just going to look at this bit. That really will lead you astray in some ways. Like, what if you just chose the chapter, uh, one of the chapters of Job's three friends? You could be misguided because what they were saying wasn't necessarily true. You have to see it in light of the larger argument of the book. And that's how Ecclesiastes is. I'm not saying that necessarily anything that Koheleth says in the book is untrue, although there are points at which you wonder, like, is this being affirmed, what Koheleth is saying? Or do we have to understand it like Job as part of a larger argument? But either way, you have to see that this book is is teaching a larger, making a larger point, and there's a progression to the argument through the book. And they have, so you have to understand the whole in order to understand the parts. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let's, let's look at the content and the structure of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 1 through 11, you have uh, this prologue where it sort of establishes what will be the main point of the book, particularly this issue of the vanity of life and the weariness of life under the sun. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, this is where you have to understand that the the chapter divisions, the verse divisions are not inspired. If you're looking at a Hebrew text, you just see a block of text, right? The verse divisions have been put in much, much later on. 
And so at times, scholars have, have having looking back at the verse division, say, well, generally they're helpful, but at times they might have been misplaced. So they're kept in your English Bible. That, does, that doesn't mean that there's a hard and fast thing, like, you know, the argument switches at this point. And, and it looks like there really is a transition in sort of the middle of chapter 6. And if you look at this portion, what you see is the, the consistent theme of going from one area of life to the next and talking about how it's all vanity it's all fleeting it's all vaporous it's all you might say meaningless although that's not really quite what the author means but just to say that you know you know how it is like i worked 50 years in my job and i retired and now they don't even remember who i am and what's it all for right it's just so fleeting does is there any point to it right you see what i'm saying so that's the general theme that's established in these chapters. If you look through, you know, you can see in your English Bible may have headings, right? The vanity of wisdom, the vanity of self-indulgence, and this is my ESV, the vanity of living wisely, the vanity of toil, etc. So it just goes through. And there is some other material in there. You know, the famous, a time to keep, a time to be born, a time to plant. You know, what, who is it? Was that Peter, Paul, and Mary that wrote, sing that song, right? Uh, or I liked as a kid, if we had the Tasha Tudor book called The Time to Keep. Has anyone ever heard of that book? Okay, forget about it. Never mind, it's nothing. <laughs> what was it called? It's called The Time to Keep. And Tasha Tudor was an author who wrote from the perspective of like early American life and all the holidays that they kept and the things they did on the various holidays. And so I loved reading through that when I was a kid. My mom passed the book down to me. I read it with my kids. So, But it's, you know, it comes from Ecclesiastes. Okay, so... Then the next section, chapters 6 through 11, you, you will see a transition when you just, even just in overviewing, scanning the text, you'll see that at this point, now the, the author, Koheleth, begins to instruct, okay, in light of the vanity of life, how then should we view it? How should we approach it? And it's not to say that everything in these chapters falls into that category just in a rigid way. There is a mixture of material, but in general, the general thrust is wisdom for life, for w- wisdom for living a life which is vanity, right? So, given the fact that we live in a fallen world, given the fact that our life is like this, how should we then live? And, and that's what you see, even some proverbial material in here that kind of refl- echoes Proverbs. He'll, he'll say things like, you know, just be content with the life that God has given you, right? Enjoy your life and, and enjoy the, the pleasures, the simple pleasures of life, and then go to the grave, right? It's very, very uh, sober. Your life isn't going to last long, so enjoy it, you know? Don't, don't be too, don't be always driving on to the next thing, because after all, it's all vanity, you see? So, this uh, is the theme. He talks about the unpredictability of death and how everything everything will end up heading to the same place even the righteous and the wicked they will all die and therefore you know make the most of the time that you have and then there's an epilogue and the epilogue really summarizes the core of the argument of the book to this point and and especially it emerged back here in chapters 8 and 9 but it's sort of summarized in the end of the book. And in fact, the the very last line of the book is really the key to the whole book in many ways. Uh, Your life is, you know, we, we live in a fallen world, right? 
your life is short and then you die and everything you do is going to be short-lived and forgotten. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But then, so you get down to verse 8 of chapter 12. And, you know, vanity is vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Then this last section, and then here, look at uh, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And you see... I think he's he's getting to the nub of the matter here. You know, what is the meaning of this life under the sun that seems like it's empty and f- so fleeting that it seems meaningless? He has given some wisdom for living in life, but the ultimate point that he wants to drive home is that, look, what really matters is the fact that you're going to stand before God and give an account for your life. So instead of living for the here and now only, which, you know, isn't that what, We do. Apart from God, we just, we find something, you know, so you start out early in life and in college you think, you know, it's all about hedonistic pleasure seeking and that that leaves you, that leaves you kind of empty real quick. So then it's your, it's your career. You get your degree, you get a job and you pursue your career and you think, okay, this is what's going to do it. But then you get into the career and in the, you know, nine to five grind or the, the seven to seven grind. And you realize this isn't really it. So what I really need is a wife and children, you know, and you have wife and children and they let you down and pretty soon they're out of the home. And then you're like, what is my life all about? Right. And he's saying, look, here's the nub of the matter. Every deed in your life is going to going to be held to account by God. So here's how you live your life. Enjoy the pleasures of your life while you have them. But here's the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandment. And so. This book is so important because it's really getting to, whereas Job dealt with the issue of how do you respond, think through and respond to suffering, this is how do you respond to and think through the vanity of life? What is the meaning of life and the purpose of life? And so the two really complement each other, Job and Ecclesiastes, in terms of the issues that they address. Okay, so the teaching of Ecclesiastes Like Job, Ecclesiastes uses this long argument to teach a lesson that will impart wisdom. Whereas Job addresses the problem of suffering and evil, Ecclesiastes addresses the vanity of life in a fallen world. It affirms that because of human sin, we will all die quickly and nothing we gain or accomplish in life will last. And that has to be qualified, obviously, but we're talking about, you know, your work and your, your family and your education, all these things. Not to say that nothing in life, but but those are the areas of life that they're covering. Obviously, the things that we do for Christ will last. Given this, Ecclesiastes affirms that we should be content with the temporary things of this life while they last, but ultimately we need to live with the final judgment in mind. So the way to live with the final judgment in mind is to fear God and keep His commandments in this life. And by the way, that's it ties in with Proverbs, right? Because what is the essence of wisdom in Proverbs? Fear of the Lord, Lord, right, is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, now let me just say something about Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. The New Testament does not ever refer to Ecclesiastes. But like Job, Ecclesiastes addresses an issue that is of universal and timeless relevance, isn't it? I mean, timeless in the sense as long as we live in this cursed world, right? This side of the second coming. 
<clears throat> and so the message of Ecclesiastes will apply directly to people, God's to people, but especially to God's covenant people in every age, right? Because when you talk about fear God and keep his commandments, you see that message, while relevant to all, is most directly spoken to members of the covenant community. And as we we, we see this type of approach to life that is taught in Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. So let me just give you a few examples of this. First Timothy chapter six, verses six through eight, where the, the context here is Paul addressing the wealthy, those who are rich in this age, right? Which is something that Ecclesiastes deals with as well. The gaining of, of wealth in this life. And look what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world either. You could have almost have inserted in there. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? <laughs> but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's Ecclesiastes, right? And you can see that he's, he goes on to encourage those who have money to use it in a way that will count for eternity. That's sort of the, the ethos of Ecclesiastes. Or James chapter 4. You know this one, right? What does James 4 say before, before I turn that? What do you think? What ecclesiastic material comes out in James 4? Do you remember? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, right? So, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do that. So, I'm not saying that the New Testament writers were thinking of Ecclesiastes necessarily when they wrote these things, but the point is that the wisdom taught in Ecclesiastes is reflected in the New Testament and echoed in the New Testament. All right? So, that, that's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of a help, help in terms of understanding the book. Any questions about that before we move to Song of Solomon? Carlton? Have scholars contemplated on what time in Solomon's life he may have been? Uh, maybe at the end of his life as he looked back over all of his wives and everything else. Right, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I think obviously some time in his life must have passed. He, he had accomplished much when he wrote the book. But yeah, whether or not he was in that latter period of his life, because it would be kind of a conundrum, wouldn't it? Because he himself has, was sort of drifting away from the Lord. But, but sometime in the sort of high point of his, of his power, he, he must have reflected in, deeply upon these, the meaning of it all, right? But And... And, and man, this book really resonates, doesn't it, with our sort of hedonistic tendencies as human beings and how that process that I described of, you know, hedonistic pleasure and then education and career and then, you know, marriage and children and family. And, and you've probably met people who have sort of gone through that cycle looking for something that will be of eternal weight or or be of such a weight that it will give meaning to their life and yet they find that none of it can hold that weight and, and really that's just we just call it idolatry right you're trying to tr- give eternal significance to things that can't bear that weight right only god and then god like ecclesiastes says puts it all in perspective once you have him there fear god and keep his commandments then you can interact with this vain life in a way that will not lead you to despair, <laughs> right? So, yeah, Keith. It's just reminding me of these two books in particular, 
about the importance of the New and the Old Testament and Ecclesiastes and Job and right. using them all to understand the particular passage, you know, pull stuff out. Right. You still study verse by verse, but you can't just grab that one verse and yeah. make that be the only thing. Yeah, and it's interesting how the different genres... So if you're in Proverbs, you can see the wisdom of just taking a single proverb and meditating on that. Whereas with Ecclesiastes, you really have to take the whole book. It's it's meant to be read almost as a whole, right? And and Job similar, although man, whew, it's hard to read Job in one sitting, you know. <laughs> but okay, well let's move on to Song of Solomon because it looks like we've got about seven minutes left. Song of Solomon. The author. Okay, so if you turn to Song of Solomon and you look at verse 1, what does it say in verse 1? The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Right. So you think that that would mean, off the bat, that this Solomon wrote the book, and that is the traditional understanding. However, many have disputed that over the years. The book speaks of Solomon many times, right, in the book, but always in the third person. And so we look at it and we go, well, that's it's obvious that Solomon still could have written the book sort of from that narrator's perspective. And if verse 1 says it that way, it seems like that's how we should take it. That would be the most straightforward way that we should take it. And First Kings 4.32 says that Solomon composed many songs, over a hundred songs, it says. So it would make sense that this would have been one of the songs that he composed, that he wrote as he wrote, the Spirit inspired him, and, and it was preserved for God's people. If it wasn't Solomon, then it's up for grabs. I mean, there's no indication of who the author is. And that's, I mean, many books in the Old Testament are like that, so it wouldn't change really anything for us, but it does seem that it was written by Solomon. Solomon is mentioned throughout the book. You can see there the texts, sometimes in an offhand way, you know, like the like the Garden of Solomon or something like that. Or Solomon actually does make an appearance in the book. He's described as coming with his entourage at uh, at, at a, in chapter uh, in chapter three, seven through eleven, I think. So, if Solomon didn't even if Solomon didn't write it, it seems very clear that whoever the author would be, he has Solomon's reign in the background. It's provi- it's framing the book, so that would mean that the date was probably in the tenth century. Again, the nine thirties when Solomon reigned. What kind of genre? It, it's very interesting that for a long time the book of Song of Solomon was seemed very unusual to us, but the discipline of modern archaeology has dug up documents that look very much like it from Egypt and other parts of Mesopotamia, which means that what we have here is a genre of love poetry, and that's the genre in which this book was written. So that Solomon, in other words, was aware of a a larger body of material, a genre in which people wrote that we might describe as love poetry, and he wrote this book within in that genre, right? So, similar to the way that you might talk about apocalyptic literature. You read the book of Revelation, you're like, this is so bizarre. And then you realize that there's actually a broader 
body of apocalyptic literature that's very much like it uh, that from intertestamental Judaism, right? And, and so, oh, they were writing within that genre. And that's how this book is as well. We didn't know that for a long time until we began to discover other documents that looked very much like the Song of Solomon. Okay, I want to talk about some of the different ways that this book has been interpreted. Obviously, it's been very common to interpret the book as intended to be a symbolic portrayal of the covenant relationship between God and Israel, and then later, of course, Christ and the church. So, that this book is was written as an allegory is one interpretation. Another is that this book isn't a unity. It's, it's a collection of love poems. And the, the advantage to this view and the motivation for it is that it eliminates the necessity to try to discern the story being told in it. Because there is no coherent story. It's just a collection of love poems. The third, and these last two are really more where um, sort of modern conservative scholars would land, is one of these two. One is that the story told, that that it is a, a single poem, and that the story told is of two poor, a, a poor shepherd and a poorer, a lower class woman who are in love with each other. And, but Solomon is vying for, he wants to take this woman into his harem. So that when Solomon appears in the narrative with his retinue, the idea is that he, has, he wants to have this white woman for himself. But in the end, the shepherd and this country girl end up being married and rather than, Sol, rather than her being given to Solomon. And so that's one interpretation of how to understand the story that's unfolding in the book. The fourth, which I think is probably the the most the more traditional view the view that i would hold is that it just tells the love story between a man perhaps solomon himself and a shulamite woman right so either way it's a shulamite woman because that's explicit in the text but that this is a love story between two people solomon enters the narrative he may be the lover or he may just be appeared in in the narrative and we'll talk about that but this would say there's not like three parties involved in a more sophisticated storyline. So given the number four interpretation, which if you read commentaries on Song of Solomon or even look in your study Bibles, you'll probably see different ways that, it, that it's approached. Either three or four are the most common. Or if you read the old Puritans, which one do they th- take always, usually? Number one, right? So from this perspective, the chapters one through three, the lovers express their desire for each other. Uh, chapters 3 through 5, 3, 6 through 5, the lovers are married and they consummate their union. So just to give you a little taste of this, what, what I'm talking about, uh, in chapters 1 through 3, there's this clear restraint, you know, don't awaken love before the time, you know. And then in chapter, at the end of chapter, when, when you get to uh, the chapter 5, verse 1, the bride and groom seem to have come together. There's even this sort of erotic language. And you get to chapter 5, verse 1. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. You see, uh, eat, the others eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So there's a consummation of, there's a wedding, and there's a consummation of the marriage. There's sexual union there. And then, 
you get to chapter five and six, and you have the married lovers go through a problem. They're temporarily separated from one another, and then they reunite. And in the next section, you see this whole similar to. Uh, one through three, you see all these renewed descriptions of their affection for one another and and their admiration for one another, and then finally, at the very end, in the last verses, another young lady is introduced onto the scene, and and the the married couple gives counsel regarding the the new young lady, and then they end with final expressions of love for each other. Right. A little note. You can see in the text the way the poem is structured is there's a man, the lover, a woman, the love, the beloved. Of course, they're both beloved to each other. But then there's an unidentified group in your Bibles. It might be called others, the heading others, uh, that there is these onlookers who interject and give counsel to the couple or invite them to do things or comment on what they've said, right? Or ask them questions. So that's how the poem unfolds. Now, the teaching of the Song of Solomon. So we're running out of time here, so I'm just going to go through this quick. First, it affirms the goodness of romantic attraction and affection between a man and a woman. I mean, it's a book that makes you blush, right? And, and so what you see is that this book in no way backs off of the goodness of romantic attraction and between a man and a woman, that it's good for a man and woman to be in love, as we use the modern lingo, right? So, in other words, there's something to those, uh, what is her name, Jane Austen novels. You know, they said the, the cold, detached, marry for money and status type of way that Victorian England used to do it, that there isn't actually biblical, right? <laughs> that, that there should be, it's right for there to be affection and mutual love romantic love in the context of a relationship, in a marriage. It also affirms the goodness of erotic sexual intimacy between a husband and the wife. I mean, this book is, again, it makes you blush. It takes you right into the midst of that and doesn't, is not ashamed of the sexual intimacy between a husband and the wife, between a husband and the wife in marriage. And then also, It affirms the goodness of ongoing romantic love. So it's not just for the purpose of getting them together and then all that stuff kind of goes out by the wayside and now it's all just checkbooks and who's going to take who to school and doctor's appointments and all that and all the romance goes out of the way. No, you see the couple continuing to cultivate romance even as they mature in season in their marriage, even as they go through relational difficulties. So that's the immediate purpose. But let me also affirm that there is a purpose that lies behind this when you think about the place of Song of Solomon in the canon of Scripture, right? Because isn't it true that human marriage is analogous to the relationship between God and His covenant people? First of Israel and God and Israel, and then of Christ and the church. You think about it. Human marriage is established in Genesis 1, Redemptive history ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb between Christ and His church. And in between, God is always using marriage and even the the covenant relationship within marriage to describe His relationship with His people. So He takes them as His covenant people. That's marriage. They worship idols and violate the covenant. That's adultery, right? And in the church as well, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And He points back, Paul, explicitly to Genesis 
two, the two, the man and the the man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says this refers to Christ and the church and a great mystery. So, when you think about that, well, how can you look at Song of Solomon and say, well, that yeah, but it has nothing to do with the relationship between Christ and his church. No, you can't do that. It's not to say that you interpret it as an allegory. It is a love poem. And and its immediate purpose is to extol the virtues of romance and sexuality within human marriage. But when you look at it in the broader picture of the canon and you see that marriage itself points to the relationship between Christ and his church, well, do you not also see that the the extolling of the love between the beloved and the lover, that that speaks some to, in some way to the glory, to the beauty, to the wonder of the relationship that God has taken us into with himself in Christ. That there's something of Christ's love for his people and the relationship that they will have through all eternity that is echoed for us in the pages of this wonderful love poem, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to say also some things that Song of Solomon refutes. It refutes engaging sex outside of marriage because there is a tension in the opening chapters. The, the, the lover and the beloved are so smitten with each other, but they must restrain themselves. And the others call them to restrain. And they say to the others, do not awaken love before the time. However... It also, it also refutes pursuing sex for the sake of pleasure apart from romantic love. So in this book, it's that, that love that, that is the context in, in which sexuality takes place. Not the sort of bestial pursuit of sex that we see in our society. Also, It refutes thinking that romantic love and sexuality are inherently impure. Ah, far from it in this book. It affirms the purity of these things. So on the one side, the sort of crass approach to sex in our culture. On the other hand, the sort of overly prudish approach to sexuality in the church. And then uh, next, pursuing sex purely for procreation, which was a, a very frequent way that, you know, the old the monks of old or the old church fathers like Augustine, they, they viewed sex as inherently impure, but they knew that it was required for the propagation of the human race. So procreation would be the only legitimate reason to pursue it. And yet here in Song of Solomon, we see that's not true, right? It, it functions as the enjoyment and delight of the spouse, the spouses within marriage. And then being content with a marriage that is devoid of romantic love and sexuality, that this book invites us to not let go of that as the marriage goes on. It's not to say that it won't look different, but that that it is part of a good marriage. And then finally, thinking that romantic love and sexuality are only for the beginning of a marriage, right? That's Because that's the whole point. As the As the love poem goes through, you see the the sunset of the couple's life, and they look to the next couple, and yet the book ends with these expressions of affection for each other, even to the in those sunset years. All right, so that's the book of Song of Solomon. No questions, because we're out of time, but you can come up and talk to me afterward if you want.
hopefully it's made you blush a little bit because I don't think that it was God intended us to read it without blushing a bit because it sort of takes us into some very uh, striking territory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our study of the books, these books in the Bible and uh, the, the completion of our first part of this overview of the Old Testament. We pray that just our, our souls will have been enriched by flying over these 66 books and dipping into each one to understand it at a, at a broad level. And we pray that you would give us a greater grasp of the whole canon of Old Testament Scripture and, and how it relates to the person and work of Christ and, and that its teaching would be dwelling richly within us. And we pray it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.